Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hearts and Markets, leapt this week at news that a COVID-19 vaccine being developed by Pfizer is more than 90% effective. It will take time, but the arrival of vaccines to tame the pandemic is now within reach. But for many people, COVID-19 will continue to shape their lives long after the pandemic is over. You're listening to Babbage from Economist Radio, a weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Natasha Loder, The Economist's health policy editor. And today on Babbage, I'm investigating long COVID. For a significant number of people, there are long-term effects of having an initial infection with COVID-19. But we're only just now starting to learn what they are. Just how much do scientists know about this condition? It is still early in the disease, and it's unclear as to what extent patients will continue to have abnormalities in the long term. And what do doctors still need to learn to treat patients? We need to be thinking about well-planned studies to really understand the prevalence of long COVID. We also need to be looking at the biology behind long COVID, and that will lead to more understanding and potentially to treatment. I originally caught COVID back in March, uh, March the 19th, my symptoms started. I think my illness technically was mild. I had awful fever and a lot of sweat, a lot of chest tightness and pain. Tom State is a 32-year-old entrepreneur and marathon runner. It took about three weeks before I was sort of able to reasonably go out and about and, uh, you know, go shopping and do, do that sort of stuff. I almost got to the point at the end of April where I felt fairly normal. At the beginning of May, some of the original symptoms that I had during the acute phase came back and then also a whole load of new symptoms came along. All sorts of things that didn't happen the first time around. I had uh, gastrointestinal problems, I had severe chest pain that was worse and different to the first time. I had a lot of confusion and difficulty with sort of cognition. I had these strange spasms in my throat that started. It felt as though my entire body had been kind of hijacked by a new phase of, of the illness that was distinctly similar to the, the first one, but kind of different in, in form, if you like. On 2nd June, when I went to work, I was just feeling sleepy all day and I was yawning constantly and staff were just teasing me, what's going on with you? Seema Charters is a consultant anaesthetist in the north of England. She's 57. 
when i got home i developed a high temperature through the evening through the night and it just got worse over the days after about a week seema's condition worsened and she was admitted to hospital i am an anesthetist and i am a doctor and i i should know what to expect but you are never really prepared yourself to be a patient i feel in the evening i was taken to intensive care and there i needed cpap and high frequency nasal oxygen i stayed in the hospital for 12 days and when the oxygen was completely taken off then they allowed me to go home first 6 weeks or so i just thought these are just kind of post icu kind of symptoms all this tiredness fatigue and uh, i just thought why am i not feeling energetic one particular symptom that i had was hair loss i am still losing hair recently i started getting chest pain um, in last 3 4 weeks that has come on i still have some gastrointestinal symptoms stomach upsets still continue now i know any new symptom i get could be long covid unless proved otherwise because otherwise i have been a fit individual Seema and Tom are not alone. Of people who have symptomatic COVID, it's about one in seven people who get symptoms for longer than 28 days. And it's about one in 20 people who have symptoms for longer than eight weeks. And about one in 45 or 50 people who get symptoms for longer than three months. Claire Steves is a consultant geriatrician and senior clinical lecturer at King's College London. She's working on a COVID symptom study app. But of course, that's people who get symptoms at all, and that doesn't include the number of people that may be asymptomatic at the beginning. These data are from app users self-reporting their symptoms, some of the most valuable information for scientists who are studying the disease. We've looked very carefully at a subset of the users on the app who tested positive for COVID. We looked at how many sort of consecutive days people were having symptoms and what symptoms they were. And through that way we managed to get an assessment of how long symptoms do last for in symptomatic COVID. What kind of symptoms are coming out with long COVID? So over 90% of people present to us with fatigue. Around about 80% of people are presenting with respiratory symptoms, particularly shortness of breath, and in some cases a persistent cough. Martin Marshall is a primary care physician in Newham, East London, and chair of the Royal College of General Practitioners in Britain. Around about 70% of people are presenting with pain, particularly muscle pain and muscle fatigue. probably less than 1% of people go on to develop symptoms that last for longer than 12 weeks and that's the kind of post covid syndrome that people are referring to so i think the term long covid will still be used particularly by the public but we are focusing much more on ongoing symptomatic covid between 4 and 12 weeks and on post covid syndrome after 12 weeks the scientific consensus is to view long covid as a syndrome meaning a collection of symptoms The spectrum of symptoms can seem like a confusing mess, and which of those that patients develop might just be the luck of the draw. But using data from Claire Steves' symptom study app, Britain's National Institute for Health Research recently hypothesized that there are four pathways to this syndrome. Elaine Maxwell is a clinical advisor at the institute and is running its analysis on long COVID. 
we identified four different patterns of symptoms. There are the people who've been critically ill in hospital who take a long time to recover. There are some people who we know have got end organ damage, either caused by the virus or by blood clots, because we know clotting is a major issue in acute infections, or by lack of oxygen. And they will have very particular problems around their heart or their lungs or their kidneys. And then there's people who have something different that may be one or maybe two different things. Some people have the classic post-viral syndromes of fatigue and muscle pain. But then there are some people who have this very atypical pattern where they get fluctuating symptoms and they fluctuate both in their intensity, but also where they are. This can move around all the systems of the body. We don't know what's causing that and we don't know how long it's going to last. So there are some people in month eight and nine, and I know from speaking to them, they're quite frustrated at people saying, well, you know, long COVID is if you've had it up to eight weeks and they're saying... (laughs) That's just the beginning. And we don't know how long that is going to continue. And that's got major implications. There are significant groups of people of working age who haven't been able to work for eight or nine months, who are reaching the end of their sick pay or are self-employed and can't see when they're going to be able to go back to work. So we are suggesting at the moment we should keep our minds open to the fact that it might be different and not just assume it's a chronic fatigue syndrome. We found that at two to three months from the onset of symptoms, patients recovering from COVID-19 who were admitted to hospital had persistent symptoms of fatigue and breathlessness, and this affected more than 50% of people. Betty Rahman is a senior clinical academic at the University of Oxford. She studied the damage to multiple organs using advanced MRI. She looked at 58 hospitalised COVID-19 patients and matched these with uninfected members of the community based on their age, their body mass index and pre-existing conditions. The other thing that we observed was that a proportion of patients had signs of tissue abnormalities on MRI. So when we looked at the brain, roughly 10 to 11% had changes in the brain. When we looked at the heart, Up to 26% of people had abnormalities on MRI in the heart. 29% had changes in the kidneys, which were not seen in the uninfected cohort. And about 10% of people had signs of tissue abnormalities on MRI after moderate to severe COVID infection. COVID-19 is a respiratory condition, so it's a surprise to find abnormalities in the brain. When our neuroradiologist looked at the scans, there was actually no difference in a qualitative assessment of the images between our COVID group and controls. But when we used more uh, sensitive quantitative instruments to measure damage in the brain, we found that there were some tissue abnormalities to suggest an increase in blood breakdown products in the brain. And what this is saying is that Perhaps there is some injury to the blood vessels in the brain, which is subtle, but has resulted in these changes on MRI that we're detecting. The other thing we assessed in our patients was the cognition, their memory, their ability to perform complex tasks. And what we found was a particular aspect of this cognition, which is called executive functioning, 
was essentially impaired in our patients. This affects people in the way that they might find doing a task that requires three or four steps harder than the average person. One of the most difficult questions to answer is what causes long COVID? We are hypothesizing that this might be related to the immune response that a person develops to clear off the virus. And the reason for this suspicion is because we found that the higher an individual um, was seen to have markers of inflammation in the blood, the more likely they were to develop injury to the organs beyond the lungs. Another possibility is that the viral particles may still persist within the organs. And a third possibility is that the person who is recovering from COVID-19 may be developing an autoimmune response where their immune system starts attacking its own organ and tissue of the individual. COVID-19 is a new disease, so it's very hard to identify precisely what causes these longer-term problems. But collecting data on people who are experiencing these symptoms might help us to figure out who is more likely to be affected. We looked at that quite carefully because in the COVID symptom study, when you log on, you'll know that we ask people about the conditions they have from beforehand. Claire Steves, who is working on the King's College Symptoms app. The one condition that we did see associated with long duration symptoms was people with asthma. But of course, asthma is very common. And so it might be that we have more ability to detect a relationship with asthma. And it's true that in other viral conditions, people with asthma do tend to have ongoing symptoms. We didn't see any particular relationship with any other conditions that someone might have had beforehand. But we did see quite a strong relationship with age. And so the older that somebody was, uh, certainly up to the age of 60 or so, the rates were increasing. Are you more likely to get long COVID if you've had symptoms than if you haven't had symptoms at all? Well, in terms of our data, we only looked at the duration of symptoms if people had symptoms. You know, if someone is asymptomatic at the beginning, we, we wouldn't count them as somebody who has persisting symptoms But people who have long symptoms, the symptoms that they experience in the first week are quite important. It seems that the greater number of symptoms that someone has in the first week and the more multi-system the condition is in the first week, the more likely they might be to have long COVID. And we think that's important because if we want to actually predict who might be at risk of long COVID and intervene early, we need to find predictors in that first week. So we encourage the use of our prediction model to sort of identify who might be at particular high risk and therefore important to be recruited to any new trials that might be aimed at preventing long COVID. Although the self-reported app data might just be the best information available, Elaine Maxwell urges that researchers proceed with caution. One of the things we have to be cautious about is making definitive or declarative statements too early. So I know a lot of people have made statements about the prevalence, but our view and our steering group, so this was a review written by me, but guided by a steering group of a wide range of people. We had people from uh, the Defence Military Medical Services, hospital consultants, psychologists, OTs, physio, a whole range of people. 
our view is that we don't know what the prevalence is at the moment because people who volunteer to be in in surveys or complete apps may not represent the whole population. So we know, for example, a study came out of Leeds that's suggesting that long COVID exists in care homes with older people. So whilst there is a lot of data about younger people and women experiencing long COVID, we're not sure if that's because they are more likely to complete an app. Long COVID symptoms are likely to have already affected millions of people globally and will continue to do so as the pandemic progresses. Coming up, what are doctors and researchers doing to tackle long COVID? Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When people first started experiencing long COVID, their complaints fell on deaf ears. My doctor was very helpful during the acute phase and during the recovery phase, but when it got to these new symptoms, I had massive challenges in persuading any doctor that I saw, be it my GP or at hospital, to take the symptoms seriously. A lot of doctors, and this is a very common experience for people who are suffering with long COVID, that it's hard to persuade a doctor that what you're experiencing is a part of the illness and that it's not caused by anxiety or, or kind of a psychosomatic aspect. And is that what you were told? Yeah, so um, after the, the first day that I started with the severe chest pain in May during the second phase of the illness, it was so severe that I couldn't breathe properly. So I went to A&E. Um, they didn't investigate beyond an ECG and a chest X-ray. And the doctor said to me, he said, uh, you know, go home and have some dinner. That was it. You know, there was no, for me, it was terrifyingly severe kind of incident of chest pain and shortness of breath. There was this perception, I think, back then that if you didn't have pneumonia, it, it couldn't be COVID. Both Seema and Tom found that online support groups were more useful in identifying long COVID symptoms. When I went on these uh, long COVID support group and I, I joined body politic, basically, then I started to realise that these symptoms have been experienced by thousands of people. and But reading on these support groups kind of validated my symptoms. Gradually, a few hospitals, like the University College Hospital in London, started a post-COVID-19 service. In June, I saw a respiratory doctor at an official COVID clinic in London, and they looked at my respiratory symptoms. And when I talked about neurological symptoms, um, the doctor I saw told me that COVID-19 isn't proven to cause neurological symptoms and that if it did, we would have to wait for research studies to happen to confirm that that was the case. Now, fast forward four months, earlier in the week, I finally got my neurology referral to the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery in London. And the doctor who I saw told me that a full one third of his patients have my symptoms, the same symptoms that I've been describing for months and have been struggling to 
get medical professionals in other areas to take seriously. I mean, it's vindicating, but it's frustrating. And because I'm still suffering, there's the question, well, if I'd have been able to get access to the right people earlier on in the illness, would that have had a positive effect on the long-term outcome? Um, And that's a question I will never know the answer to, unfortunately. I asked Martin Marshall, a primary care doctor and chair of the Royal College of GPs, how they should go about treating these patients. I think there's a range of different things we need to do. First of all, as GPs, where the problem is usually presented, the most important thing is to listen to the patients and to understand them. These are people who are sometimes suffering quite debilitating symptoms. So listening to the patient, getting a history of exposure to COVID, either from a positive test or more likely, particularly from the early stages, from just uh, the common symptoms of COVID. And then conducting a few preliminary investigations. I think that's really important because there are other causes for the symptoms that I've described. For example, people with fatigue and breathlessness might well be anemic. So it's very important to do some simple blood tests. People with breathlessness might well have a chest infection. So a chest x-ray might be useful. And sometimes more sophisticated investigations for things like heart or neurological problems are necessary. Some people we will have to refer on and some people will need ongoing care, either from community-based services or from hospital-based services, including care from disease-based specialists like neurologists and respirologists and cardiologists. And at the moment, access to those services is not great. A key question is where the difference lies between long COVID and post-intensive care syndrome. This is a collection of physical, mental and emotional symptoms that persist after a patient has left an intensive care unit. I have already been doing research in the post-intensive care realm and understand that there are long-term effects of being in the ICU. And that can be from any number of illnesses, including viruses. Anne Parker is an assistant professor at the John Hopkins School of Medicine. When many other doctors were surprised about lingering symptoms, she set up a post-COVID clinic at her hospital. Part of the reasons we started our clinic back in April is that we were able to build on that existing knowledge and that existing literature base to anticipate that at least a subset of these patients, at least those requiring hospital care and especially in the ICU, would be at risk for the constellation of symptoms that fall under that umbrella of post-intensive care syndrome. Do you find that any of the patients who turn up at your clinic have been mislabeled as having long COVID? Right now, COVID is on the forefront of everyone's minds. And so it's very tempting to say, yes, this person with the shortness of breath and the fatigue or weakness is falling into this category of of what we would call long COVID. However, I think it's really important as um, clinicians to consider that our patients might have something else going on. And that could be something like an underlying lung disease um, or a clotting disorder, those types of things. We are very careful to have a very broad differential and to consider lots of possibilities before we sort of hone in on long COVID or prolonged COVID symptoms. What about sort of treatments? You know, would steroids help? Would any of these antiviral drugs help? Or is it too late for that sort of thing? You know, I think we don't know at this point. We're really rigorously considering 
what the potential benefits and harms are. Now, things that we use commonly like steroids, it's a little bit more challenging because we might have other indications to give steroids to a patient. For example, if they're coming after coronavirus, but they're also having symptoms of an asthma exacerbation or, you know, prolonged symptoms of an underlying lung lung problem as well. And so there are certain things that we would do that might overlap with our treatment for other illnesses or diseases. Um, but things that we're really looking at as novel therapies in the COVID survivor population, I think really that's where, where well-done clinical trials come into play. Are your patients getting better? Will they get better? We certainly have seen uh, patients along the continuum. We see patients who get better quite quickly. We see patients who it may take several weeks, but they are showing steady improvement. And we certainly have patients who have ongoing symptoms for many months after their initial diagnosis. And I am as curious as anyone to better understand what the risk factors are for patients to fall into any of those categories. Many patients are still struggling to get help. And Britain is slowly leading the way in making care available to long COVID patients. NHS England have announced a spend of £10 million on long COVID clinical services. That'll include comprehensive services. It'll include physio, occupational health, mental health services, a whole range of different services that will be available. And then, of course, there's an online service as well, which is at an early stage of development, but it is available on referral to patients in order to support and encourage self-care where that is appropriate. That's at an early stage of development at the moment. I think I'd probably say it's a little bit too specialist orientated, given that most people who have post-COVID syndrome will be ones that don't require super specialist advice. And scientists are determined to expand the investigation. Elaine Maxwell of the National Institute for Health Research. The first thing was to try and actually really do a census and work out what the prevalence is so we can start to investigate if there are four different syndromes as we are proposing. There isn't really enough data to be clear about prevalence at the moment. I think then once we've understood better the incidence and prevalence, then we can start saying, well, what research questions do we have to ask about these different groups? We also need to be warning people about it. So some of the uh, younger people who, who don't feel that they should adhere to strict infection control procedures because they don't perceive that they're at much risk of dying of it, need to be aware that, you know, it's not just a question of dying or recovering. There may be this third option of being quite debilitated with long COVID. Betty Rahman is continuing to look at MRI scans of hospitalised COVID patients. I think there are three important questions that we'd like to answer. So firstly, the changes we're seeing on MRI were different between people who had COVID versus a control group. But it still remains unclear to us as to whether this was pre-existing in some individuals it would be very helpful for us to study people who had been scanned using MRI technology before they had COVID and then repeat the scan after they have COVID. And we are working on doing this. The second important point is we need to understand whether these changes that we're seeing on MRI are transient or if this is likely to be a more permanent thing. So Follow-up imaging, so doing another scan in these 58 individuals at six months, will be important to work out what group recover. 
And then finally, what does this mean for people in the long term? So will this be responsible for people coming into hospital in the future? And could this be related to the risk of mortality or death in the future? So currently, we have plans to assess people who are being enrolled into the FOSS COVID study, which is a study led by Leicester and aims to follow up 10,000 people across the UK. Some of these long COVID patients didn't even have a serious disease. They, they were not even tested positive, but they are not really mild illnesses because they have come out with these debilitating long COVID symptoms. And so it's a huge financial burden on primary care, but we need to start somewhere. And first of all, these patients need to be believed. You go through this process of thinking, ah, it's a two-week illness, and then you don't get better, and you think, ah, so after another week, maybe I'll be better. And then your timescale extends, and you think maybe after a month, after another two months, after three months, uh, and then the symptoms are still there. And after eight months, you know, I'm asking myself, well, do we ever get completely better? You know, or, or does some of this just hang around forever? In a sense, um, you you eventually learn to relax into that unknowing, I suppose, and let go a little bit and just ride along. But it's it's a long, it's a very long journey. Patients face a frustrating wait for answers. Scientists hoping to find them have enrolled thousands of patients in America, Britain, China and Europe. More news could come soon. For now, those suffering the lingering effects of the disease must deal not only with the physical symptoms, but with uncertainty about just how long it will take them to get better. Some, though, will worry that this may never happen. Our thanks to Tom State, Seema Charters, Claire Steves, Elaine Maxwell, Betty Rahman, Martin Marshall and Anne Parker. And thank you for listening. For more from us, subscribe to The Economist. In this week's issue, you can read about what a COVID-19 vaccine means for our lives. For a special introductory subscription rate, head to economist.com slash podcast offer. That link is in the show notes for this episode. And please leave us a rating on your podcast app. It really makes a difference. I'm Natasha Loder. In London, this is The Economist. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.